0: Happy Mother's Day. Nobody said it back to me. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Thanks, yeah. How many of you moms had awesome breakfast in bed this morning? Nobody? Nobody had awesome bed and breakfast this morning? Uh, What was the best Mother's Day present you got so far? Anybody want to brag on kids? I saw the manicure, yeah, yeah. Got to check out her fingernails when we're done here. How many of you guys who were setting up this morning noticed that I didn't come in until like 9.30 or so? Probably because I was being an awesome husband on Mother's Day, well, Peter's shaking and said, "No, <laughs> 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 don't be fooled." I slept till nine this morning. I was up late working on the sermon. I slept till nine. I woke up. Amanda was running around the house ironing my shirt, and kids were going crazy. Then I spanked like three of them and. Um, so yeah, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> uh, I, I do want to talk about Mother's Day um, this morning, not the end times like Ben said in the group chat or wherever. Uh, let me ask a question. Mother's Day is meant to honor mothers, right? It's meant to honor motherhood. Does anybody know when Mother's Day began or when it was founded? Anybody have a clue when or why or where or how or anything? <laughs> is it Hallmark? Hallmark? It's not a Hallmark holiday, but Hallmark took it over. So the person who founded it was a, a, uh, a single childless woman um, who was obsessed with her mom, and she pushed for it. Um, and uh, by the time that she was nearing the end of her life, she was trying to kill it and end it all because of how it became become Hallmarkified. Um, that is an interesting fact about it. It actually began the movements, there were various movements for Mother's Day that began in the 19th century, uh, mostly in anti-war uh, movements like that. So it was originally there was like a Mother's Peace Day that began, where you'd hand out carnations and, you know, it'd be about world peace, stuff like that. But Mother's Day as we have it came to us in 1914 by decree of Woodrow Wilson. Now, fun fact, what else happened related to motherhood in 1914? Any guesses? Yeah, that may be true, but that's not what I was thinking of. (laughs) You're probably right about that. I trust Caleb on that. Smart kid. Uh, But something even more maybe at home than that, Margaret Sanger began the birth control movement in 1914. That's what it's stated to. That's what it's tied to. 1914, Margaret Sanger and two other women began the birth control movement in the United States, and their goal was to erased the Comstock laws, which were laws against perversity of all kinds, pornography, and that included laws against birth control. In 1916, she founded the first, uh, what would later come to be known as Planned Parenthood. So let me ask the question, that was over 100 years ago. We have some historical perspective on that. Is it a coincidence that Mother's Day and the birth control movement were started in the same year? Maybe. Do you think it's a coincidence? Do you think there might have been something in the air, something happening, something going on at the time? Uh, Let me tell you a fact that you can watch for once you know it's real. And once you know it's real, you'll see it in other places. It's true, like on a big sociological scale it's also true like on a small individual scale and that's that the things that you tend to sentimentalize and romanticize are things that you don't actually love things that a society tends to romanticize and sentimentalize are things that society doesn't really love but knows it should and feels guilty about places where we have a bad conscience about things we know we ought to really love and truly love we tend to manufacture a fake love that is sentimentalized and romanticized. Those things go hand in hand. And here's an example of that. Uh, The Victorians were notorious and famous for all kinds of things. You think Victorians, you think of all kinds of things, right? One of the things the Victorians were notorious for was sentimentalizing children and childhood innocence and the romanticism of childhood. If you think about Dickens... Think all you need in your head is just like Tiny Tim, right? God bless us, everyone, right? Perfect little angelic Tiny Tim. Those types of characters are all throughout Victorian literature. Why would the Victorians be so focused on romanticizing and sentimentalizing young childhood innocence? The Victorians also sent their children to work in factories and in coal mines at the age of five. They sentimentalized and romanticized the things that they were destroying. This is a true thing that we do. Okay? So, do we, years downstream of Margaret Sanger and the advent of Mother's Day, do we really honor motherhood in America today? Let me tell you some stats that came out just this past week. Birth rates in America have dropped 19% since, guess the year, 1914? No, 2007. Yeah, I was hoping you would say that. I was hoping you'd say that. 19% is a big number, right? 20% drop in birth rates since 2007. In 2020, we had the lowest birth rate in American history, and that's not just a pandemic. Thing. It, we all know that the pandemic influenced that number to be as low as it is, but it was a part of a trend line that was moving down. It's actually not that far off the trend line. Do you know what the birth rate is? According to the New York Times, it's 1.6. Replacement rate is 2.1. That's the number of kids you have to have to replace each other, like a family has to have to replace each other, right? 2.1 per family. 1.6 is death decline, population decline. Below 2.1, you're dying as a civilization. You're aging and declining. That's what it means. 25 states last year, 50% had more deaths than births, more coffins than cradles. It's never happened before. I was uh, reading an article that came out in The Atlantic just last Sunday, and this is how it begins. And this is something that's sort of going on parallel to this, okay? To be a working mother during a global pandemic is to be constantly torn between your kids and your clients. At times in the past year, Amy Conway Hatcher, a lawyer at a big firm in Washington, D.C., would overhear her two children having dinner with her husband and not be able to join them because she was working 80 to 100-hour weeks on a big case. For Allison Fasto, having it all meant listening to her six-year-old sob and bang on her door in search of comfort and not being able to give it to him because she was in the middle of an important call. Quote, the distance that you have as a parent working outside of the home keeps you from seeing these things, she told me, and then she started to cry. Parents might tell themselves, my kids love their nanny, they love their teacher, but sometimes in moments of anxiety and uncertainty and stress, Bastow said, there really really is no replacement for mom and dad. Last spring, Molly quickly was working seven days a week as the communications director for Clyde's, a restaurant group in DC. Many days, too, she was in tears. Meanwhile, her three kids were posted up all around her doing Zoom school. Quote, I was just like yelling at everybody all day long, she told me. My six year old wasn't staying on his Zoom class, and I finally realized I just can't do it all. The article goes on to discuss the tension that these moms feel and other moms have felt during the pandemic. And the realization being forced on them that their kids actually need them more than they thought they did, leading to a desire to downshift. And that's the word that the Atlantic uses, to downshift, to move from these big full-time positions into part-time positions. But feeling the tension of how that's going to impact them all career-wise long-term. And the article is warning women About downshifting because it's gonna impact your career and increase the wage gap between men and women and all these things. These are the tensions we all feel, right? These are the pressures that we all feel. We've inherited a world of two incomes and control and ambition and romanticizing and sentimentalizing motherhood at the same time. And so here we are. Way downstream of Margaret Sanger, way downstream of Woodrow Wilson. There's no turning back the clock and going back to the way things once were. What do we need to understand from God and his word if we're going to grasp a healthy view of motherhood this morning? I just want to go over some basic obvious truths. The kinds of truths that should be obvious, the kinds of truths that should be uncontroversial, at least in the church, and they're just from Genesis. So I want to start in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. And you can turn there with me if you want. Um, It's not going to be on the screen because I was late in getting the passage to Seth like literally 15 minutes before the service. I was like, oh yeah, this is the passage. So um, I told him not to worry about it. Let's pray uh, while you're turning. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us tender hearts to you and to your word and that you'd open open our eyes to see the beauty and the glory and the joy and the difficulty and the pain of motherhood. And I pray that you would help us have faith for it and help us to love the mothers in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Then, sorry, the first word is that, not then. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, pause there. I want to point out just two things. The first thing is that God made Adam first, and God gave Adam work to do. That work was to cultivate and keep the Garden of Eden. Okay, that's the first thing. God created Adam, God created gave Adam work to do, and that work was gardening. The second thing is that Adam was given the freedom to enjoy the fruit of his work. So Adam was created to work, and Adam was given the privilege of enjoying the fruit of his labors. Okay? Two things right there off the bat. Now let's keep reading. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man, Adam, should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Then the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. Now, Two things about this I want us to notice. First thing is explicit. The second thing is implicit. The first is that Eve was created to help Adam in his work. Adam was created to work, to keep, to tend, to cultivate, to subdue the earth. He couldn't do it alone. He needed a helper. So Eve was created to be his helper. Second, Eve was created so there could be fruitfulness in the human race. Every living thing God created, he said to it, be fruitful and multiply. But how could he say that to Adam alone? He couldn't, unless he made a helper fit for him. Someone who fit in every possible way. And yes, the Hebrew means every possible way. So Eve was created to bear children. Those realities are at the heart of our identities, the heart of who we are. They define us as men and women. Men are made for work. Women are made for work. The work of helping their husbands and bringing life into the world. And those realities are reflected in our bodies. Men are taller than women. I was really hoping that Bart Blaylock would show up today and say, Have you seen a woman that looks like Bart Blaylock? Instead, I have to ask Ben to stand up and. Just kidding. Men are taller than. That was not a nice joke. <laughs> I apologize for that. <laughs> now, look, hey, that's important to point out because. We're talking big generalities here, right? And there, are, we're talking generalities, there are always going to be exceptions and things that are different, right? There's only one Bart Blaylock around that's 6'5 and a massive specimen of a man, right? But it's still true, right? Men are generally taller than women, men generally have broader shoulders than women, they have more testosterone coursing through their veins, that makes us stronger, generally speaking, right? And women are, so men are designed to bring order from the chaos of this world, to subdue, to build, to fight, to protect those gods placed under our care, right? And women are built differently. Women are built to bear children, designed precisely, uniquely, beautifully to bear and to nurture children. So their bodies are different. We recognize those differences. We eroticize those differences because they're beautiful. In general, when we're acting according to nature, we're attracted to those very differences, right? That's not a bad thing, just a normal, obvious thing about how God made us. Is there a woman in this room that didn't marry a man who's taller than her? Probably not. Maybe, maybe close. It happens. I was offended that oh, when we were dating that Amanda listed my height as one of the things that she liked most about me <laughs> and that she'd never have dated me if I was short, shorter than her. Super offended. Shouldn't she love me as a person? <laughs> yeah. Part of my person is that I'm 6'3". It's not a bad thing. It's a part of attraction. It plays itself out in kids. It's not culturally conditioned That boys play with trucks and girls play with dolls. You see it in kids from a small age. It's just, it's as much nature, more nature than nurture. Boys are different. The other day at the baseball field, I put a piece of ice down the back of Geneva's shirt. It was a hot day. And she screamed and cried And she thought it was a frog. (laughs) Why did she think it was a frog? Because my boys were playing in a ditch and they were playing with frogs and they thought some boy had. Slipped a frog down the back of her shirt. Yesterday at soccer, Abe presented Amanda with a live snake that he was handling. Boys are different. (laughs) They're weird. And here's another thing about uh, soccer. Um, If you come to me, or if you come with me to one of Lucy's travel soccer tournaments, you see it in the difference in the temperaments of boys and girls. Because what will happen is the boys and girls of the same ages will be playing on adjacent fields. And my goodness, is there a difference in how the boys play and how the girls play. It's crazy. It's just completely different. And it's not just speed and strength and skill. It is in some ways those things, right? Even at younger ages. But it's also just mentality. The boys are killers. They're just killers. They're so aggressive compared to the girls. Like, it's like shocking to me. I'm so used to watching girls' soccer and I walk, look over and watch a, a boys game. I'm just like, whoa, like, jeez, dial it down, guys. Like, somebody's going to get hurt, right? And then, I, and then, yeah, and then Peter tosses his hand, and I'm like, yeah, all right, yeah. All right. These are boys. Go hurt each other, kids. Like, let's go. And I know there are differences, right? Like, if I were picking a softball team from this room, uh, there are a handful of women in here I'd pick over most of the men and boys, Right. Did I take Lucy over most of you? Okay, and Lucy's never played softball. There are differences. Okay, that's okay. We're talking about generalities here. We're talking about big picture things that are generally true and beautiful. But if it's beautiful, what's the problem? What happened? where did it go wrong? Why is it so hard to love? Motherhood, the differences God designed between us. Back to Genesis. Because y'all know what happened next in the story, right? Adam and Eve sinned, God disciplined them because of their sin. And I want us to watch what God did when he disciplined them and us, because he tailored his discipline to their sex. Those disciplines are passed down to us, because God knew exactly what we need. He knew what would drive us to him, what would keep us dependent on him, what would keep us relying on him, what would keep us from saying we are God's. So in Genesis 3.16, after Adam and Eve sinned, God addresses the woman first. This is what he says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There you are know, two things God disciplines in Eve. First, he increases her pain in bearing children and bringing life into the world. He makes it difficult for Eve, too, to be a help to her husband, because she's now going to want to over him rather than submit to him. She's going to want to take his place. So God frustrates and makes difficult the two things he made Eve to do, to be a helper and to bear children. And then he turns and addresses Adam. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground out of it you were taken, for you are dust, into dust you shall return. Two things about Adam's discipline. The work Adam was, going, was given to do is going to be more difficult now. The ground doesn't want to be cared for Adam anymore. It's going to resist him, and Adam's work won't be as fruitful. Rather than freely enjoying the fruit of his labors, Adam's going to sweat for his bread. The disciplines here are so. Remarkably similar, right? Adam and Eve are both hindered in the work they'll do, but the disciplines are different because we're different. It'll be harder for Adam to keep and subdue the earth, it'll be harder for Eve to help him, and God makes bearing fruit more difficult for both Adam and Eve in their own respective ways. Now, this reality and this fight, this discipline is what defines us today, right? Or rather, running from that discipline is one of the things that defines us most as a culture. What defines modern American men? I'd say, as much as anything, laziness. The defining reality is that we don't want to work. We don't want to take responsibility. We don't want to deal with thorns, thistles, and weeds. Because it's hard. And it is hard. And we'd rather the ground just sort of pop fruit out at us. We'd rather our jobs be easy. And we expect them to be easy. And when they're not, we want to lay down and quit. It's hard. Some men live with their parents until their late 20s because it's hard to make a living and it just shouldn't be that hard. Right? And what defines modern American women? Well, it's an insistence on being independent of men because men are unreliable. An unwillingness to be the helper of a man and to bring children into the world because it's excruciatingly difficult and hard and vulnerable. Since we're focusing on motherhood today, let's talk about how hard it really is for a minute. This is a quote from something written by the best mother I know. Bearing the fruit of children means enduring the nine plus months of pregnancy, pull out with sickness, tiredness, itchy, stretching skin, ligaments that are being pulled and strained, swollen, achy feet, sleeplessness and restless nights, pregnancy brain, heartburn, varicose veins, and on and on. And then labor and delivery and recovery. And it doesn't end there. Pain of childbearing continues in small and big ways. Navigating the early years of sleeplessness and 24-7 care, training a stubborn toddler, and later on trying to discipline a rebellious teenager, perhaps facing rejection from your children as they grow into adulthood, any number of sicknesses, accidents, and heartaches along the way. And of course, these things aren't even givens. God can collect on his loan anytime he likes. He can take your child from you even before he's born. Add to this the acuteness with which we see our sin drawn out by our own hearts, of our own hearts by our children. These are the things that make many women turn tail and run. These are the things that create great vulnerability and weakness for us as mothers. Motherhood's hard, right? She goes on to talk about the joys of motherhood, and I'm going to skip that for now. Leave us there for a minute. This is the church, and I'm talking about sexuality and not spirituality. Somebody want to blow a whistle and call foul? Offsides? Godliness, real godliness is tangible, it's practical. And anyone in here with a sense of what real godliness looks like will tell you what the importance of work means for men and what children mean for women. And how much our willingness to give ourselves to those things bears on our sanctification. When I was training for ministry, one of the most important aspects of my training wasn't even my training, it was that I spent five years, a year off after school, through my training, working commercial construction working with my hands, having to get up every morning at 5.30 or 4.30. That's one of the most important things for me and my growth. We don't need circumstantial evidence to prove that fact either. God tells us this, actually. He tells us this in a couple different places. In First Timothy 2, speaking of women, he says, But women will be preserved or saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, what on earth can that mean? It can't mean that having children and raising children earns you God's salvation, right? Jesus came to save all sinners, men and women alike, not saved by works, but by faith. So, what does it mean? It means that bearing children is central. It is crucial to how God keeps and sanctifies and preserves and protects the women He's saving. For many, that means the children you actually bear and raise. For mother, for others, it means not being able to bear your own children for any number of reasons of reasons. But in all cases, it is crucial to what it means to be a godly woman. You can't simply be a godly person. You have to be a godly woman, and I have to be a godly man. Throughout 1 Timothy, God makes a distinction between masculine piety and feminine piety. There's a list of qualifications for what it means to be a godly man, and a list of qualifications for what it means to be a godly woman. And there's a ton of overlap, because we, we are a lot alike. But there are places where, where it's different. This is what uh, God says about an aging widow who's to be supported financially by the church. A widow is to be cared for only if she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation of good works, and if she's brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she's assisted those in distress, and if she's devoted herself to every good work. That's different than the qualifications for men. In fact, quite literally, the verse above this deals with men in a very different way. But if a man does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A man must work and be able to provide for his family or is worse than an unbeliever. A self disciplined life is a life given to good work. And every man who knows the satisfaction of a hard day's work knows the way God uses simple, unspiritual tasks to help us grow. When we give ourselves to work, we can't just sit around being self-absorbed blobs, right? When we're striving against the thorns and thistles, we don't have time to be wasted on sin. We don't have the strength to give to our lusts. We're tired at the end of the day, not restless looking for restless pleasures. We're disciplined to take responsibility for ourselves and others. These are the ways God works in men through the ordinary physical discipline of work. And it's hard to get motivated to do it because thorns and thistles think. But also it's complicated because it's what we're made for. And there's no greater joy than giving yourself to work and seeing a job well done. God works the same way in child rearing for women. Having little ones to attend to and a house to manage changes things. God knew what he was doing when he looked at Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone. Adam needs help. Men need help. Men need women. That's what it means. And women need men. Especially once you put children in the mix. That's when we realize how much we need each other. So we want to honor motherhood and the moms among us, right? A couple things that we can do. The first thing is get a right view of the high calling of motherhood. All of us in here. A right view of the high calling of motherhood. We all tend to look down on motherhood and think of it as a nothing. Ian made a joke the other day. Oh, what what do you do, mom? Oh, you do nothing. Right? He thought that was pretty funny. It wasn't quite like that, Amanda says. Amanda's defending him. <laughs> it was a joke, right? But it's a, it's a joke for a reason. Here's one little bit of corrective perspective for you. I've read more quotes in this passage from Not the Bible, or in this sermon than from Not the Bible than any other sermon. I'm going to do a little bit more. This is from an essay published in 1910, four years before Mother's Day and Margaret Singer. Our race has thought it worthwhile to cast this burden on women in order to keep common sense in the world, the burden of raising, rearing, bearing children. But when people begin to talk about this duty as not merely difficult, but trivial and dreary, I simply give up the question. For I cannot with the utmost energy of imagination conceive what they mean. When when domesticity, for instance, is called drudgery, all the difficulty arises from a double meaning of the word. If drudgery only means dreadfully hard work, I admit the woman drudges in the home as the man might drudge at his job. But if it means that the hard work is more heavy because it is trifling, colorless, and of small import, then as I say, I give it up. I do not know what the words mean. To be Queen Elizabeth within a definite area, deciding sales and banquets and labors and holidays, to be some person, I don't know who they are, within a certain area, Providing toys, boots, sheets, cakes, and books, to be Aristotle within a certain area, teaching morals, manners, theology, and hygiene. I can understand how this might exhaust the mind, but I cannot imagine how it could narrow it. How can it be a larger career to tell other people's children about the rule of three, and a small career to tell one's own children about the universe? How can it be broad to be the same thing to everyone, and narrow to be everything to someone? No, woman's function is laborious but because it is gigantic, not because it is minute. I will pity Mrs. Jones for the hugeness of her task. but I will never pity her for its smallness. Get a right view of the calling of motherhood. Big, and it's beautiful, and it's weighty. Two, get a right view of the gift of children. Psalm 127, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Three, mothers have faith for the work. Not just the work of having kids, but of raising them and loving them and disciplining them. And trust God who richly rewards those who fear him. Four, husbands, be the kind of man that makes your wife feel safe and protected. Fathers, discipline your children to honor their mother and don't tolerate disrespect of her. Single women, embrace the beauty of your femininity. Learn to embrace it with grace and modesty. It's God's gift to you. Single men, be the kind of man that would make a woman feel safe. Safe enough to be vulnerable bringing a baby into a hard, harsh world. Which is not to say be safe so much as it is be the right kind of dangerous. And children, which is everyone here, everybody here got a mom? Yes? Yay? Yeah? Anybody an exception to that rule? You have a mom. Proverbs 10.1 says this. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. How do you make your mother happy? Don't be a fool. Get wisdom. How do you do that? Here's an assignment. Kids, read Proverbs 1, 7 to 9, and it'll be a good start. Let's pray. Father, we all feel... A lot of pressure, pressures of our lives, the realities that we face, the difficulties of being mothers and fathers and sons and daughters in a world that's at war with you and at war with the way that you made it. And we all have ways where we feel guilt and shame for failures and weaknesses and joys and gladness for the ways that you've helped us. We pray this morning that you would help us to trust you and to bear with the difficulties of this world in a way that honors you. I pray that we would truly honor motherhood today and honor the mothers you've placed in our lives. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.